all your failures, bring your addictions, come lay them down at the foot of the cross. Jesus is waiting, God so loved the world. Let's just bow our heads, uh, quiet our hearts before God. Father, we just pray that as we come here this morning, uh, we come with many burdens, we come with many frustrations, um, and just the cares of this world, and we just pray that you would help us to set those aside again, to just come here uh, and kneel before your feet, to, to lift praises before the throne, and just to remember that you are in control, you are great, you are mighty, you are strong. And Father, you are the one who watches over us. We can cast all our cares on you, uh, for you care for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I am grateful for uh, Eric and Ange and the birth of their son. I guess he came a little early, but uh, praise God for that. And so we're grateful for the newest addition to our church family. Also, there is out in the entryway a display. I guess diapers and wipes are the thing. So that's uh, what they're asking for for the, the shower. So <clears throat> there's more information in the bulletin, I'm sure. So you can take note of that. I'd like you to just, uh, oh, by the way, if you are a newcomer and you fill out that little flap, or even if you're part of a regular church family, there is always time to give us feedback, so we're interested in that as well. You can put it in the box, the offering box, as you leave, okay? That's where, that's where you put it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, we worship a king, and there are promises to those who worship the king, all glorious above as we gratefully sing of your power and your love, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful truths from your word, that we would receive the word of God for what it truly is, the word of God and not the word of men. And I pray that you would work in each of our hearts, that we receive what you have for us today, that you'd take even the things that come out of my mouth and you would uh, translate them into the things that each of our hearts need to hear. And we pray that you would be magnified and you would be glorified and that your kingdom would be expanded and that you would be honored in Jesus' name. Amen. One day as a young boy, I was out in the woods near our home and I climbed up into a treehouse and I had a, a, a book of matches that is a little... For some of you people, I guess maybe I need to explain what a book of matches is, okay? But it's a, a little packet with matches that you pull out and you, you light them. And it's, there's about 25, 30 little matches in this book. And I had this book of matches and I was in the woods up in a treehouse and I was kind of like fascinated with fire. And so if you're here a young person and you're listening to me, please don't do this, Okay. This is not an endorsement, but I, 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 I lit each match individually, and then I watched it drop to the ground below me, just fascinated, like, wow, do it again. And I knew it was wrong, okay, but my conscience really didn't bother me until a little bit later that afternoon when I confessed to my mom what I had done. And she said the most blood-curdling words that a young child can ever hear. Wait until your father gets home. 
Now you have to know, my dad is of the generation that has the mindset, I brought you into the world, I can take you out. (laughs) And when my father got home, he sat me in the driveway of our house and he got a box of 250 Ohio blue tip matches. And he said, I want you to sit here and I want you to light every single match individually and think about what you did. And I sat there bawling my eyes out, lighting every single match until they were all gone. And you think, that's kind of strange punishment. But I felt guilty, and it was horrible, because every time I lit a match, I was reminded. And so here's the deal. When, when generally, the knowledge that my father was coming home and that any misbehavior that I had engaged in was going to be judged severely usually kept me on track, right? Well, this morning, as we end the passage of Jesus' Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 25, we come to a passage where he's reminding us of something that's coming that should affect how we act now, okay? And so Jesus is in this section in Matthew chapter 25, and I think we, we messed up a little bit in the bullet outline. It's verses 31 through 46, okay? In this section, it's the third parable that Jesus shares in Matthew chapter 25 that talks about uh, the re- being ready for Jesus' return. And in this one, he holds out the reality and the severity of God's judgment as a reason, as motivation for those who are rebellious to repent and believe. And those who are righteous to live rightly in anticipation of his coming. And so he, he, he says, okay, when he returns, there's a day of reckoning. And are we ready? Are we ready? We should be acting in a way that, that we're prepared for it. So I want you to take your Bibles, if you have them, you can turn to Matthew chapter 25, and I'm going to read verses 31 through 46. And in this section, there are two aspects of, of Jesus' certain coming to judge that are recorded here that are intended at least I think, to inspire believers to care for other believers and to incentivize or to incite unbelievers to repent and and to believe in Christ and exercise genuine faith so they avoid the judgment that is predicted here. Okay, Matthew chapter 25, beginning with verse 31, Jesus says, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the, from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. You gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. 
This is what Jesus is, 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 is laying out for them. And then verse 37, it's like the righteous will answer. Now notice how he equates the righteous with the sheep. because These are the same group of people. They're going to say, well, when did, when did we do all this? Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the, these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. That's the first part. Then... Verse 41, then he will say, also say to the one on his left, those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in naked, and you did not clothe me sick in, in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not care for you? take care of you then he will answer them and say truly saying truly i say to you to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these you did not do it to me and these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life the first aspect of this is the promise that we have of the judgment okay our Lord promises to come in judgment in verses 31 through 33. Now, we have the context. If you have your Bibles open or your device or whatever, look at verse 30 of just, that comes just before 31 in Matthew 25. The context is he's just got done saying that he's going to cast the worthless slave into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So again, that's the second parable that talks about preparedness and readiness for the kingdom. And it sets the stage for another discussion of what the Lord will mean, what it will mean for the Lord to return and what he expects of those who are his children when he does. But when the Son of Man comes, notice the word when, not if. It's a statement of certainty. It's going to happen. When the Son of Man, this is, and I've said it before, but this is a messianic designation that comes from Daniel chapter 7. Okay? The Son of Man, these people would have known, oh, whoa, he's claiming to be the Messiah. There's no question in their mind. The Son of Man will come in his glory with all his angels. Okay? The Son of Man is not only a messianic designation, it's also a declaration of his humanity, also an indication of his humility. He's the Son of Man. will come with all his angels in radiant glory. Now you can look at it. I'm going to skip over it, Chad. You can skip over 2 Thessalonians, the slide. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, it talks about it uh, in, in that as well, but I'm not going to take time to look at it right now. If I were to ask you, what are the two things that, you know, are, are guaranteed in life? Death and taxes, right? Well, add to that the return of Jesus. Death, taxes, and the return of Jesus. He's coming back. This is what it says. And upon his return, he's going to sit on a glorious throne. And who sits on a throne? Kings sit on thrones. Judges sit on thrones. 
When he returns, he returns as the glorious king of the universe. I love the songs that we were singing, you know, the king, the king, the king. And it doesn't say a king. The Bible, the text we're looking at, never says a king. He's going to come back as a king. He's going to come back as the king on his glorious throne, and he's going to come as a king who judges. And this is all imagery right out of the book of Daniel, chapter 7, where God the Father Almighty is seen as the king. Well, guess what? God the Father and God the Son will reign, and he's the king. And I believe that he will appear as the divine king and judge, and this judgment, I believe, depicts the, the judgment that will take place at the end of the tribulation when the Son of Man comes to judge those just before the beginning of a literal millennial kingdom. It's coming. All humanity is going to be classed. If you're on the right, you're going to be the sheep, the righteous, and those who enter eternal life are going to be on the right. Okay? The goats who are accursed we're going to eternal fire on the left. See, isn't it interesting the contrast between Jesus' initial first coming? He came in obscurity as a babe in a manger. Not, not to judge, not to condemn, but to seek and to save that which is lost. Luke chapter 19, verse 10 tells us. So that he demonstrated his love for a, a undeserving humanity who deserved the wrath of God and the punishment of God by dying on the cross as a sacrifice so that all who would put their faith or their trust in Him as their substitute could be delivered from the judgment that's, that's coming, the penalty of death. And Peter says it, and I quoted it before in 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His own body on the cross that, he might, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by His wounds we are healed. That's what he did. But when he comes again, it's not going to be obscurity. It's going to be radiant glory such that anyone alive at the time, will nobody will miss it. He's not coming to seek and to save. Not coming to provide redemption, but coming for reckoning. No second chance. No, whoops, I missed it the first time, I'm going to get it this time. No. In finality of judgment. So I can't leave this point without saying, asking this question. As you listen online or you're here this morning, which camp are you in? Sheep or goat? The text tells us the destiny of each and that we need to be taking account of that and getting ready. If you aren't a sheep, if you're a goat, all I can say is my challenge and my plea with you is to repent and believe. So there was the promise made and then we see the particulars in the picture that Jesus paints of the judgment that's coming when he returns. And there are two groups judged. Obviously, as you listened and read through the text with me, it's not rocket science. There are sheep and there are goats. So we're going to talk about each one. There's a judgment on the sheep. And there are four details. In verses 34 through 40, 
uh, four details of the judgment provide us cause, I think, for self-examination and for action. First of all, the, the locality of the sheep. Um, it says in verse 34, then the king, I love that, the king. Notice in verse 31, the son of man. The Son of Man is the King, and the King is the Judge. The King will speak first to those on His right, and when you're on the right, you occupy a place of honor, a place of prestige. You know, where is Jesus seated right now? The right hand of the Father. When I was in Arizona, my folks, um, I, I watched... Wheel of Fortune. Uh, I don't usually watch Wheel of Fortune, but uh, we watched it. At the end of each episode of Wheel of Fortune, who does the host speak to first? The losers. <laughs> okay. Uh, the one with the least amount of money after the game. Uh, well, you know, Joe, thanks for coming in. Sorry it didn't work out for you. The next one, well, hey, you, you know, you, you're going away with a couple thousand dollars. Pretty good on you. You know, Jesus, when he comes back, doesn't speak to the losers first. He addresses the winners. He addresses the righteous. Those in the privileged position are spoken to first. Then there's the identity of the sheep. And I, I say this because he, he speaks in the second part of verse 34. He says, come, you who are blessed of my Father. That's an invitation, but it's also a declaration. He says, come, but he's identifying who they are. For those whom the Father has blessed. How has he blessed them? Well, he's blessed them with the supreme privilege of pardon so that they're part of his family. They're in the family. So Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 20, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and I give them to, unto them eternal life. These are people who are believers. They have eternal life. They've been blessed by the Father and they're able to inherit the kingdom, Okay. Then we see the destiny of the sheep. Where, where are they headed? As those blessed, in the end of verse 34, he says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Believers are, are, are commanded to inherit the kingdom. Okay? It's a directive to take their place in God's eternal kingdom. Prepared for you. I just read this morning in, in uh, Romans chapter 9, Verse, verse 23, uh, that there are vessels of mercy that God has prepared beforehand for glory. This is a declaration of God's sovereign choice, His sovereign plan to redeem people from among humanity to spend eternity with Him. And he did it before the creation began, or at least sometime right out after, close to it. It says, before the foundation of the world, okay? It's part of his plan. Salvation comes from God's blessing us, and it's received by faith. It is his blessing. To be blessed of God is to be part of the family. 
prepared in advance. In 1 Peter, uh, you can, if you can go to this one, Chad, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope from the resurrection, through, from, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance that's incorruptible, that's undefiled, that fades not away, that's reserved in heaven for us or for you. And then he goes on in verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. These are the blessed. Blessed be the God and Father who caused us to be born again. And that's his blessing on us. Then there's the activity of the sheep, verses 35 and 36. Why are they blessed? Now here, you have to hold on here, right? Because you see the word for there in verse 35? For means reason. That's the reason. The reason why you are invited to inherit the kingdom of God is this. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was an outcast or didn't have a place, a stranger. I was sick. I was in prison. Now, this is my paraphrase, okay? So if you're following along in the Bible, I know it's not saying that. But, and, and, and you... You've, you fed me, you clothed me, you gave me something to drink, you visited me, you came to me. That's why. So if you're tracking with me, you're going, oh, okay, so Jesus said these are the people they're in, and this is why they're in, so does that mean that if you just do these things, then you're in? So is this work salvation? If we just do the right stuff, then we, we have our ticket. No. And the reason I don't believe that this is what Jesus is teaching, is because of the Bible, but a few reasons particularly, is first of all, that Jesus tells us that those who inherit the kingdom do so because they're blessed by the Father. You just said that, right? You're blessed by the Father. No child is blessed with an inheritance from their parent because of what they do. They're blessed by their parent with the inheritance because of who they are. Because they're the child of the parent. In the same way is true. God's children don't earn their inheritance in the kingdom because of their works. Inheritance is by virtue of our relationship with God as joint heirs of Jesus as a result of our faith. That's Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. Secondly, if we can look at John chapter 3, verse 36, um, in John 3, verse 36, and I'll, I'll read it for you. If you have your Bibles, you want to look there, that's fine. I think John 3, verse 36 says this. It says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. So belief is manifest through obedience. And belief is the evidence of obedience. So by meeting these basic needs of the people, those whom Jesus identifies, they demonstrate that they have faith because they're being obedient to Jesus, obedient to God. So their obedience is the evidence of their faith. Their obedience isn't what makes them children of God. Okay, I hope that you understand that. The fruit was not the root cause. The fruit, which was they were doing these things, was not the cause of their going into the kingdom of God. It was a consequence. 
for the fact that they were going into the kingdom of God. And finally, um, why would they be surprised? Look at verse 37. It's like, what did we do? When did we do all this stuff? Why would they be surprised that Jesus was commending their good works if they were counting on their good works as the means for them to get into the kingdom? He wouldn't do that. They'd be going, they'd go, yeah, 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 it was really good, wasn't it? You know, uh, we really shined there, didn't we, Jesus? I th- thought you'd notice that. No, they're going, what did we do? So it's not a matter. They, they wouldn't have been surprised at that commendation. When, right, when the righteous, uh, these righteous people, they're professing ignorance, right, of what they've done that merits them going in, Jesus explained it, their ministry towards their other brothers and sisters was the issue. That's what's going on. That when they ministered to other brothers and sisters, they'd really helped Jesus. What they had done for those, they had been really doing for Jesus. So you may, well, we better understand who these brothers are and sisters, uh, you know, whatever, they're, they're brothers. Well, you know, you can make a lot of different cases, but I'm going to distill it down into what I understand. Jesus, in the context of Matthew chapter, and Matthew, in verses, in chapter 23, verse 8, and in chapter 28, verse 10, brothers refer to Jesus' spiritual disciples, okay? And uh, Douglas O'Donnell in his commentary put it this way, my brothers in all four gospels is only used by Jesus for his followers. The needy brother of mine, the needy brothers of mine are the spiritual siblings of Jesus, okay? When, so when he says in this passage, Whatever you did to these brothers of mine, he's talking about other Christians, okay? And you say, okay, he's done it to other Christians. These are other Christians who embrace and they extend the ministry and message of Jesus. So when we contemporize it, it's just other brothers and sisters in Christ who are on mission with us to share the gospel and to make disciples. That's how we understand what Jesus is saying to them. It is with the followers of of Jesus, who are experiencing these basic human needs, right? It's the people who are hungry, people who are thirsty, people who are lonely, people who are sick, people who are um, in prison, that for their faith that he's talking about. And these are the ones with whom Jesus has the greatest solidarity. See, the, the test, our, our faith is tested as to genuine or not, by virtue of how we treat other Christians or how we treat Christians (laughs) if we're not a Christian. Our faith is tested. The genuineness of that faith is tested. Uh, If you look at verse 40, he says, and the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, no, uh, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Well, who are the least of these? That's a term. Uh, similar to the little ones that's used in uh, Matthew chapter 10 and then also in Mark chapter 9, this reference to little ones. They're, they're humble followers of Jesus. Okay, so little ones doesn't always mean little in stature. Okay, it means little in their being perceived by the world. These are people who are not people of status. They're not privileged. They're not highly positioned people necessarily, okay? But for whom hardship is a reality or need is a reality. They're brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need. Now you think about that. What's the context here? 
first century Judaism? And how were the Christians being perceived by the Romans, by the religious establishment, religious establishment, and by society in general? Christians were not held in very high regard, right? The early Christians were mistreated. They were deprived. They were persecuted. They were imprisoned. Think Jesus. Okay, don't think Jesus. Think John, John the Baptist. Got imprisoned by Herod, right? Cut off his head. Think about Paul. Think about Peter. All, all the time, they're preaching the gospel, sharing the God news, good news, and they're going, they're getting imprisoned, they're getting beaten, they're getting... And so were other believers. Read the Hebrews chapter 11. These people were giving, uh, seeing the seizure of their, their goods and counting it joy for the cause of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, if you're persecuted, count it all joy that you've been, called, you've been counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. So this is the idea. Now, most people, most people read Matthew chapter 25, this section, the sheep and the goats, and they will, and I'll say this, you can, hold on, erroneously, I believe, they erroneously use the passage to support the claim that Jesus is teaching that believers need to care for the, the, the little hurting people all over the world of every, everyone, every little hurting person, every, every, every needy person in the world. Now, I've said that, and you're all kind of going, well, what's he going to say now? Jesus certainly taught, Jesus absolutely taught, that we as believers should care for everyone. Okay? He just didn't do it here. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, verse 39. Love your neighbor as yourself. A lot of other places that Jesus taught us to care for the needy and hurting. He just didn't do it here. Here, he taught us to care for the hurting, the needy, the lonely, the outcast, the sick, the deprived, who are in the church in our family, who are God's people. Now, you can go to Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, you know, that we're supposed to do good to all men and especially to those who are of the household of faith, right? That's Paul. That's not Jesus. Doesn't diminish what it says. That's what Paul said there. Everyone, and especially the believers. Jesus is just targeting believers here. That doesn't mean he didn't teach that we should teach, we should care for others, okay? So I hope you get that right. But I have a problem when people take this out of context. Yeah, see, we're supposed to care for the little, the little ones, the, everyone. Well, yeah, but that, that's not what Jesus is teaching here. Teach what Jesus taught from where Jesus taught it. Okay. And so here he taught to care for other brothers and sisters in Christ. Turner Apley says, There is no doubt that Jesus modeled and elsewhere taught the necessity of helping all who are needy. But this particular passage is not part of that teaching. You see, we evidence our genuine love. Believers evidence our genuine love for Christ through our gracious treatment of the Christians who are around us. That's what Jesus is teaching. I want you to look at a few verses in 1 John chapter 3, uh, verses 10 and 11. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother or his sister. Get that? The one who does not love his brother or sister is not of God. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we are to love one another, meaning 
brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus said it in John 13, 35, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. We can go to um, the next one in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, maybe a little more familiar passage. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and loves God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. We're supposed to love each other. And then in James chapter 2, uh, verses 14 through 17, what use is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith, but he has no, no works? This ties directly into what Jesus is saying here. Can, I think, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister, fellow Christian, is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? In the same way, faith also, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. The deeds here are representative. They're not exhaustive. It doesn't mean, okay, well, as long as I make sure my brothers and sisters have food and clothing, and as long as they they have something to drink, as long as I go to see them when they're sick, as long as I go to visit them if they're in prison, and uh, if they're a stranger, I really don't know them, and they're a brother and sister, and I bring them in, then I'm good. It's all all God requires of me. No, it's if they have a need. If our brothers and sisters have a need, maybe they need to learn English. No. Maybe they need diapers and wipes. Uh, a few years ago, there was a, a person in the church I was serving, and uh, this person was a, a, a large, had a large turkey operation. And uh, it was early, or it was late, early, early spring, middle, middle of the spring, it was the end of April. And uh, so on these turkey buildings, which you need to know is on these turkey and hog buildings, they have thermostats and regulators so that the, the, there are curtains that help regulate the temperatures inside and outside these buildings. So when it's hot out, the curtains come down to allow air to go in, and when it's cold out, they go up to keep it from getting too cold in there. Well, what happened was the, something malfunctioned, and the, the, the curtains didn't go down. And it was very warm out. And this particular farmer lost 5,000 turkeys. Died. 7,000 in the building. 5,000 died. And they were one week away from going to market. So we're talking 40 to 50 pound turkeys. 5,000 of them died. Member of our, our congregation. And the afternoon, the day we found out about it, there were 10 guys from our church that worked all afternoon. Every turkey had to be handled and thrown into a bucket and hauled out, and uh, it, was, uh, it was a mess. All afternoon, a person in need. And that's what God calls us to do. We help people move. We help people with their food. We help people with their clothes. We help people when we see a brother or sister who has a need. We help them out. That's what it means to be part of the body of Christ. Believers are challenged to serve our brothers and sisters in our own family, in this church body, in our community, and in the world. That we are aware of, that we know. I mean, if there's somebody in Zimbabwe that's a believer I'm not really, I don't know them, I really, you know, but I know people, you know, from, you know, Sierra Leone maybe, or I know people from uh, uh, other places, I can help that believer because I know that believer, I know their need, I'm going to help them. So that's what I do, and that's what God, Jesus is saying here. 
in the larger body. So I asked this morning, this is the application, do, do I make sacrifices? To help meet the needs of my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I willing to help out? How we treat others reveals the nature of our relationship with God. That's what I think Jesus is saying. There's nothing that evidences our conversion more. Maybe, I mean, well, maybe. This one demonstrates our conversion seriously in our compassion, our care, and our ministry to others in the body of Christ. It shows that we're, we're, we're part of the family, that we're his children. God has commanded us to love one another, okay, as we have been loved. So when we love as we have been loved, we're not doing it to earn God's favor. We're doing it because we've been loved. It's just a natural outflow of, of, of who we are in Christ. And, you know, here's the thing. This one is not reserved for a certain elite group of people. Well, I don't have the gift of love. What? I don't have the gift of service. I don't have the gift of visiting people who are sick. I don't care. Jesus doesn't care. He just says, if you're a child of God, that's what you do. You know? And so it's not for the elite. It's for, it's for us foot soldiers, okay? It's for everybody in the body of Christ. And that's the judgment for the sheep. See, the judgment for the sheep is actually, if we're really living for Jesus, it's a glorious thing because enter into the, the kingdom, enter into his glorious love. But then there's the second one, that's the judgment of the goats. And again, four details, all right, that stress the fate, which is exactly opposite. And I hope as we read through this, you see the, the, the parallels, the antithetical parallelism. Okay, that's the fancy theological way to say it. But you have two stories that are basically identical, but they have completely different outcomes. All the, all the details are really the same, except they're antithetical. So now the goats, what's the identity, what's the, what's the locality of the goats? Well, they're not on the right, they're on the left. And the left is a place of shame. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 10 Verse 2, it says, a wise person's heart directs him towards the right. <laughs> what does the wicked do? Oh, let's go to the left. Okay. Two roads diverged in the woods, and I, I took the one less traveled by. <laughs> I think that's the right. Okay. So, this is it. And then the identity of the goats, uh, Jesus doesn't say come. What does he say? Verse 41. Get out of here. Uh, he didn't say that. He said, depart from me. Depart from me. So it's either come, come to me and enjoy eternal intimacy with the king, or the goats, which is completely opposite of the sheep, which are sheep are welcomed into eternal intimacy. They're driven to permanent, permanent relationship that is in isolation from God. Uh, judgment. And these are accursed ones, okay? They're unbelievers. And their omission is twofold. One is explicitly stated and the other one is implicit. The explicit omission is their lack of loving service. They didn't, they didn't do the things. All the things that the, the sheep did, feeding the hungry, water to the thirsty, welcoming the strangers, going to see the sick and the imprisoned, they didn't do, okay, so their omission is their lack of service, which reveals the implicit omission, which is their lack of faith. 
they didn't serve because they didn't have faith. The, the end of or the middle of John three thirty six is that you believe, but if you disobey, you 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 aren't a believer. Okay. So that just proves that they aren't a believer. And the accur- the destiny is the accursed ones depart into the eternal fire, which God has prepared for the devil and his angels. Interesting. Uh, again, God does these things, but in Romans chapter nine verse twenty two. It says there are vessels of wrath destined for destruction. Here we have vessels of wrath that end up in the same place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, here's the question that comes to to mind. So you're telling me, Pastor Steve, that failing to care for a Christian can condemn me to hell. Well, I'm not saying that. Jesus is. He said, whoa. That's pretty stout stuff. Well, here's the problem. Um, Only a culture or a church that ignores how offensive sin is to a holy and righteous God would ask that question. I like what Douglas O'Donnell said. He said, today the church is plagued with a high view of the goodness of man and a low view of the holiness of God. Every, every, every sin. Is damnable. Deserves God's wrath. Every sin. Now, not every sin immediately receives it, but all sins will eventually receive it if they're not repented of and turned from. This is the sadness of this this story. Those who neglect God's children lack saving faith which would move them to care for God's children, which means that they are outside of God's righteousness and deserving of His wrath. And eternal punishment. Now that's not popular stuff. We're not supposed to talk about hell and, and people going to hell. Well, yes we are. You cannot preach the love of God and the holiness of God and the justice of God without preaching the, the wrath of God. Because only in the wrath of God that we deserve is the mercy of God made manifest. What kind of joy is there? What kind of mercy is there if we don't deserve going to hell? But if we deserve it and we receive something completely other, then we say, and it's not because of us, we say, glory be to God. He saved me from the wrath I deserved. Conscious eternal torment and permanent separation from God is what our rebellion deserves and receives. And uh, Jesus said it in John chapter 3, verse 36. He said it in Mark chapter 9, verse 48. And, well, here's Fort Mark, Mark 9, where their worm does not die and the fire is not extinguished. In Luke chapter 16, verse 24, where do you see this? And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, this is, you know, the rich man and Lazarus, and he says, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. I was, uh, I've, I've mentioned this book before, but Laura Hildebrand has written a book um, called uh, uh, Unbroken, right? Um, and so uh, this is a story about uh, Louis Zamperini. And Louis Zamperini was a 
captive in World War II. He was a prisoner of war in World War II. And she chronicles the, the years, the, the extended period of time that he was in a POW camp and the torturous treatment that he received was horrendous. But it was temporary. Jesus is talking about something that, listen folks, it's unspeakable horror, inescapable, and it's eternal. And, and I don't want anyone to suffer that. The activity of the goats, which leads to this, is explained for us as in 42 and 45. Again, we see the word for introduces the reason for the rejection. And Jesus expresses the reason for the rejection because they didn't do what the people who are receiving eternal life did. You know, and I mentioned it before about the hungry and the thirsty and all. They didn't do that stuff. They didn't care for them, right? But then he explains their surprise at the offense. Notice they have the same surprise that the people who are declared righteous have. It's like, when, when did we not do that? We're clueless. We didn't understand. We don't know. The callousness to the plight of, of Christians proves their absence uh, of their concern for and their love for Jesus. If they had a love for Jesus, a concern for what Jesus said, then they would manifest it in their uh, relationship with others. First John chapter 4, verses 19 and 20 says this. We love because he first loved us. Now, I want to say this. We don't love to pay God back. It's not payback. Our love for other brothers and sisters in Christ is the overflow of our experience of God's love in our life. We, we see and understand love as the sacrifice and the service, and it becomes the motivation for us to, to, to love other people. And then he, he says, yet uh, he says, I love God and hates his brother or his sister. He is a liar, and the one who does not love his brother and sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In his work, uh, Pensies, Pascal writes this, which is a fitting summary of the two outcomes he says in the two responses he says the elect the sheep the righteous i'm putting that in will be ignorant of their virtues right that's what we saw there when did we do that and then the outcasts of the greatness of their sins ignorant of that you have to put that in there the ignorant of the greatness of their sins which is at the at the coming of christ those who are righteous are going to go what did we do? We didn't know that we were doing anything righteous because we're doing only that which comes naturally to believers, which is caring for other believers. And then the, the unrighteous are going to go, uh, when did we fail? We're, we're, we didn't, we're not really that bad. And Jesus says, yes. And then we come to the conclusion in verse 46. And these, meaning the, the goats, will go away to eternal punishment. Unbearable. Eternal punishment awaits the rebellious. And the righteous into eternal life. Unbelievable eternal life. That's the promise. And we sang about it up here, right? We're waiting for God to fulfill his promise to us. Unbelievable eternal life awaits the righteous whose life is in Christ. So how do we respond? How then shall we live in light of this third parable? Knowing that Jesus is coming, 
And when he comes, it's time for judgment. I think if you're here listening and you're here in person and you really have never surrendered your life to Christ, maybe you're playing God saying, yeah, I got my life under control or you're, or you're, you're, you're acting like God, uh, rejecting him. All I can say is the plight and the punishment that awaits you is eternal and it's inescapable. I would plead with you to just surrender. I mean, wave the white flag and say, okay, Lord, I, I realize I've been doing this on my own. Repent of your sin and, and receive Christ as your Savior. Here's the deal. When we, when we admit the awfulness of our sin, and you know, it was interesting because yesterday we had the guys who were having this uh, little uh, bachelor breakfast thing and it was really cool to hear all the guys sit around and talk. You know, we, we realize we're, we're failures, you know. And here's the advice we would give you, Ryan, to, to kind of not walk the road that, that we've walked maybe so uh, adequately, uh, maybe be a little more inadequate at your sin, uh, you know, uh, as we have been. And I, I don't know about the other guys. I just know about myself. I'm hearing these other guys share, and I'm going, ooh, yeah, that, that's good. I, 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 <laughs> yeah, that's not me. Uh, I, I need to step up right there. Uh, I need to marvel at my wife. Uh, yeah, I need to serve my wife. Yeah, I need to pray more with my wife and for my wife. And you know, you're kind of going, okay, awfulness of our sinfulness. When we recognize the awfulness of our sinfulness and acknowledge that the awfulness of my sinfulness deserves God's wrath, and then I accept Jesus' payment on the cross in my place, whew, okay, I can't do this, but, but God did it for me. And now I can be His child. And the, the punishment that's promised the goats is no longer mine. So I would plead with you to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. And if you're not sure what that means, I'm going to just stick up here after the service. I'd just love to sit and have you come talk to me. If you have questions, I'll be up here after the service. I know I'd love to meet all of you, but I'm going to stay right here because I think if there's anyone who's it's tugging at your heart, you know, let everybody else walk out. I'm not going to stand up. I'm not going to call your name out. We're just going to talk and, and if you have questions about that. Because I really believe that this is what God wants all of us to, to know is a relationship with him so that we escape this wrath when he comes. Now, I said I think he's coming at the end of the tribulation before. We may not be alive at that time, but we may be alive at that time because I may have it wrong, but it doesn't matter. When Jesus comes back, there's judgment, and the judgment is going to be those who are righteous, you come in. Those who are unrighteous, you're not in. I want you to be in, and God wants you to be in. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all might come to repentance. And if you're here, you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, guess what? Think about this. I, I was challenged to think about this in, in my study. Um, before Jesus, now remember when Jesus is saying this, right? He's about to go to the cross. But before he would come back in glory as the Son of Man, the King, he would go and suffer the indescribable agony as a sacrifice for you and me. He's still the king when he went to the cross. He's still the son of man when he went to the cross. And he did it in abject humility and obedience to the Father. 
And so our awareness of our own, uh, you know, wretchedness and his holiness and his justice in bringing wrath upon us, in punishing sin, all it does is amplify his mercy. When I know who he is as the sinless son of God and what he has done, died on the cross for me, who didn't deserve it, then his, his, his mercy is elevated. And so I rejoice. Why me? Why me? And yet he welcomes us in. And he says, come in. Inherit the kingdom of God. You're a child now. You're one of my children. You have an inheritance with me. Indescribable, undefiled, that fades not away. Reserved in heaven. Whoa. All praise to him. Who crushed the power of sin and reigns at the Father's right hand, waiting to come and end the story and bring us into glory. Believers, let us rejoice, but also let us reach out to each other. As Jesus said, those who are his children do. Let us seek and find and be alert to the ways we can pray for each other and encourage one another and minister to one another as a part of the body of Christ, stimulating one another to love and good deeds, encouraging one another. As God has called us to, Galatians 6.10. Don't grow weary in doing good. You know, be, love, love those who are others, but especially demonstrate your good works to those who are of the body of Christ. Your family, that's my paraphrase. And so as we end the service, we come to celebrate the Lord's table. The promised return and the righteous judgment of Christ that we see here in the text, the Son of Man, the Divine King, serves as the backdrop against which His mercy was made known at Calvary. He's saying, I'm coming back someday and I'm going to really wreak havoc on those who reject me. But I got something to do before that. That's the backdrop for his mercy, which was manifest at Calvary. And when we take the little wafer and we take the juice, what we do is we have a tangible reminder of our great and gracious God's sacrifice. His inglorious sacrifice, uh, which he conquered death, so that all who would trust in him would have this eternal life and be escaped from this judgment. So as you sit there, and as the praise team comes, and as they play and sing, I want you to think about this. Look, Lord, you did it for me. Why? Help us gain a grasp with the awfulness of our sin. Help us to understand that he did it for us, and then elevate the mercy of God and what he's done for us who don't deserve it. So confess your sin. He's forgiven it, but we still mess up. So get right with God and then take the elements in joy. And if you don't know Jesus, take this time to say, Lord, I messed up. I accept what you did for me. And right now I want to put my faith and my trust in you as my Lord and Savior. I'll be up here after the service if you want to talk. Let's pray. Father, um, these are sobering things, Lord. But we do a great disservice to your ministry and your message. We're not preaching all. You are a great and grand and glorious Savior who went to the cross in humility for us. But you're coming back again in grand fashion to wreak havoc on those who reject you 
and to welcome those who receive you. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.